Hello and welcome, friends, family, and of course, enemies alike, to episode 116 of Reading Cadence. I am your host, the displaced Wisconsinite, Phil Olson. Now, throughout the month of November, we have been going through various types of recipe books, and we strayed off the beaten path away from food-based recipes to healing water tonics last week. So I was like, hey, might as well just get lost in the woods further. So we are going to be reading a book secondarily entitled The Inspired Singer's Recipe Book. And this one is incredible because this guy's name is Nudigate Prizeman. And Mr. Nudigate decided that the society he was living in, especially in the way they expressed themselves through poetry, was devoid of free thought and free thinking. And so he is writing this as a critique of all of the canned poetry themes that he's seen over the years. And so the recipe book that we're going to be reading is basically like, you know, Here's how you write a love poem. And then he just completely mocks the, the the stereotypes of what a typical love poem looks like. Or, you know, here's one if you want to be like uh, Tennyson or, you know, something like that. So that's kind of the flavor he's going for in his recipe book. And he um, he does it quite well. Be warned, the language is a little edgy. But you know what? It's 1872, so it's actually not that edgy, <laughs> comparatively, and I don't have to put an explicit rating on this episode. So, hey, that's a perk. Um, so, perks of reading old books. <laughs> so, without further ado, let's read The Inspired Singer's Recipe Book, or... Every Man His Own Poet, by a Nudigate Prizeman. The following are arranged somewhat in the order in which the student is recommended to begin his efforts. About the more elaborate ones, which come later, he may use his own discretion as to which he will try first, but he must previously have had some training in the simpler compositions with which we deal before all others. These form, as it were, a kind of palestra of folly, a very short training in which will suffice to break down that stiffness and self-respect in the soul, which is so incompatible with modern poetry. Taking, therefore, the silliest and commonest of all kinds of verse, and the one whose sentiments come most readily to hand in vulgar minds. We begin with directions. How to make an ordinary love poem. Take two large and tender human hearts, which match one another perfectly. Arrange these close together, but preserve them from actual contact by placing between them some cruel barrier. Wound them both in several places and insert through the openings thus made a fine stuffing of wild yearnings, 
hopeless tenderness and a general admiration for stars. Then, completely cover up one heart with a sufficient quantity of chilled churchyard mold, which may be garnished according to taste with dank waving weeds or tender violets, and promptly break over it the other heart. How to make a pathetic marine poem. This kind of poem has the advantage of being easily produced, yet being at the same time pleasing and not unwholesome. As to it admits of no variety, the chance of going wrong in it is very small. Take one midnight storm and one fisherman's family, which, if the poem is to be a real success, should be as large and as hungry as possible, and must contain at least one innocent infant. Place this last in a cradle, with the mother singing over it, being careful that the babe be dreaming of angels, or else smiling sweetly. Stir the father well up in the storm until he disappears. Then get ready immediately a quantity of cruel crawling foam in which serve up the father directly on his reappearance, which is sure to take place in an hour or two in the dull red morning. This done, a charming saline effervescence will take place amongst the remainder of the family. Pile up the agony to suit the palate, and the poem will be ready for perusal. How to write an epic poem like Mr. Tennyson the following, apart from its intrinsic utility, forms in itself a great literary curiosity, being the original directions from which the poet Laureate composed the Arthurian idols. To compose an epic, some writers instruct us first to catch our hero, as however Mr. Carlyle is the only person on record who has ever performed this feat, it will be best for the rest of mankind to be content with the nearest approach to a hero available, namely a prig. These animals are very plentiful and easy to catch, as they delight in being run after. There are, however, many different kinds, not all equally fit for the present purpose, and amongst which it is very necessary to select the right one. Thus, for instance, there is the scientific and atheistical prig, who may be frequently observed eluding notice between the covers of the Westminster Review. The Anglican prig, which is often caught exposing himself in the Guardian. The Ultramontane prig, who abounds in the Dublin Review, the scholarly prig, who twitters among the leaves of the Academy, and the evangelical prig, who converts the heathen and drinks port wine. None of these, and least of all the last, 
will serve for the central figure in the present class of poem. The only one entirely suitable is the blameless variety. Take then one blameless prig, set him upright in the middle of a round table, and place beside him a beautiful wife who cannot abide prigs. Add to these one marred goodly man, and tie the three together in a bundle with a link or two of destiny. Proceed next to surround this group with a large number of men and women of the 19th century in fancy ball costume, flavored with a great many very possible vices and a few impossible virtues. Stir these briskly about for two volumes to the great annoyance of the blameless prig, who is, however, to be kept carefully below swearing point for the whole time. If he once boils over into any natural action or exclamation, he is forthwith worthless, and you must get another. Next, break the wife's reputation into small pieces and dust them well over the blameless prig. Then, take a few vials of tribulation and wrath and empty these generously over the whole ingredients of your poem. And, taking the sword of the heathen, cut into small pieces the greater part of your minor characters. Then, wound slightly the head of the blameless prig, remove him suddenly from the table, and keep in a cool barge for future use. How to write a poem like Mr. Matthew Arnold? Take one soulful of involuntary unbelief, which has been previously well-flavored with self-satisfied despair. Add to this one beautiful text of scripture. Mix these well together, and as soon as ebullition commences, grate in finally a few regretful allusions to the New Testament and the Lake of Tiberias. One constellation of stars, half a dozen allusions to the 19th century, one to Gautier, one to Mont Blanc, or the Lake of Geneva, and one also, if possible, to some personal bereavement. Flavor the whole with a mouthful of faiths and infinities, and a mixed mouthful of passions, finites, and yearnings. This class of poem is concluded usually with some question about which we have to observe only that it shall be impossible to answer. How to write a poem like Mr. Browning. Take a rather coarse view of things in general. In the midst of this, place a man and a woman, her and her ankles, tastefully arranged on a slice of Italy, or the country about Pornich. Cut an opening across the breast of each until the soul becomes visible, but be very careful that none of the body be lost during the operation. Pour into each breast as much as it will hold 
of the new strong wine of love. And, for fear, they should take cold by exposure. Cover them quickly up with a quantity of obscure classical quotations, a few familiar allusions to an unknown period of history, and a half-destroyed fresco by an early master, varied every now and then with a reference to the fugues or toccatas of a quite forgotten composer. If the poem be still intelligible, take a pen and remove carefully all the necessary particles. How to write a modern pre-Raphaelite poem. Take a packet of fine selected early English, containing no words, but such as are obsolete and unintelligible. Pour this into about double the quantity of entirely new English, which must have never been used before, and which you must compose yourself, fresh as it is wanted. Mix these together thoroughly, till they assume a color quite different from any tongue that was ever spoken, and the material be ready for use. Determine the number of stanzas of which your poem shall consist, and select a corresponding number of the most archaic or most peculiar words in your vocabulary, allotting one of these to each stanza, and pour in the other words round them until the entire poem is filled in. This kind of composition is usually cast in shapes. These, though not numerous, amounting in all to something under a dozen, it would take too long to describe minutely here, and a short visit to Mr. So-and-so's shop in King Street, where they are kept in stock, would explain the whole of them. A favorite one, however, is the following, which is of very easy construction. Take three damsels dressed in straight nightgowns, pull their hairpins out, and let their hair tumble all about their shoulders. A few stars may be sprinkled into this with advantage. Place an aureole above the head of each, and give each a lily in her hand, about half the size of herself. Bend their necks all different ways, and set them in a row before a stone wall, with an apple tree between each and some large flowers at their feet. Trees and flowers of the right sort are very plentiful in church windows. When you have arranged all these objects rightly, take a cast of them in the softest part of your brain and pour in your word composition as above described. This kind of poem is much improved by what is called a burden. This consists of a few jingling words, generally of an archaic character, about which we have only to be careful that they have no reference to the subject of the poem they are to ornament. They are inserted without variation between the stanzas. In conclusion, we would remark to beginners that this sort of composition must be attempted only in a perfectly vacant atmosphere so that no grains of common sense may injure the work whilst in progress. 
how to write a narrative poem like Mr. Morris. Take about mm, 60 pages full of the same word mixture as that described in the preceding, and dilute it with a double quantity of mild modern Anglo-Saxon. Pour this composition into two vessels of equal size. Into one of these, empty a small mythological story. If this does not put your readers to sleep soon enough, add to it the rest of the language in the remaining vessel. How to write a satanic poem like the late Lord Byron. This recipe is inserted for the benefit of those poets who desire to attain what is called originality. This is only to be got by following some model of a past generation, which has ceased to be made use of by the public at large. We do not, however, recommend this course, feeling sure that all writers in the end will derive far more real satisfaction from producing fashionable than original verses, which two things it is impossible to do at one and the same time. Take a couple of fine deadly sins and let them hang before your eyes until they become racy. Then take them down, dissect them, and stew them for some time in a solution of weak remorse, after which they are to be deviled with mock despair. How to write a patriotic poem like Mr. Swinburne. Take one blaspheming patriot who has been hung or buried for some time, together with the oppressed country belonging to him. Soak these in a quantity of rotten sentiment till they are completely sodden, and in the meanwhile, get ready an indefinite number of Christian kings and priests. Kick these till they are nearly dead. Add copiously broken fragments of the Catholic Church, and mix all together thoroughly. Place them in a heap upon the oppressed country. Season plentifully with very coarse expressions, and on the top, carefully arrange your patriot, garnished with laurel or with parsley. Surround with artificial hopes for the future, which are never meant to be tasted. This kind of poem is cooked in verbiage, flavored with liberty, the taste of which is much heightened by the introduction of a few high gods and the game of fortune. The amount of verbiage which liberty is capable of flavoring is practically infinite. In conclusion, we regret to have to offer this work to the public in its present incomplete state. The whole of that part treating of the most recent section of modern poetry, namely, the blasphemous and the obscene being entirely wanting. It was found necessary to issue this from an eminent publishing firm in Holywell Street, Strand, where, by unforeseen casualty, the whole of the first edition was seized by the police and is at a present in the hands of the society for the suppression of vice. We incline, however, to trust that this loss will have but little effect, as indecency and in profanity are things in which, 
even to the dullest external instruction, is a luxury rather than a necessity. Those of our readers who, either from sense, self-respect, or other circumstances, are in need of special training in these subjects, will find excellent professors of them in any public house during the late hours of the evening, where the whole sum and substance of the fiercest school of modern poetry is delivered nightly, needing only a little dressing and flavoring with artificial English to turn it into very excellent verse. End of Every Man His Own Poet or The Inspired Singer's Recipe Book by Newdigate Prizeman. Golly, man, every now and then you come across in the midst of, you know, bland coal of, you know, 1500s to 1800s literature, a nugget of gold and the inspired singer's recipe book. My goodness, is probably a, a, a nugget of gold that was found in the coal and can be prized to a high level. Nudigate has won a special place in my literary heart because he has captured quite well soaking his critique in much sarcasm, uh, uh, an attribute and a quality that I, I quite admire, which is, okay, first of all, man clearly passionate about poetry. I, you could tell this guy has probably read thousands, if not tens of thousands of poetry in his lifetime of all different types of categories so that he can comment on this. So, it's not necessarily that he's critiquing poetry itself, for he loves poetry, as we all know, because he's read all of these different genres. But he is demanding something more out of the people who are writing in these genres. And he has been disappointed time and time again by this putrid, canned piece of platitudes and stereotypes that he is is this this filth he wants more and why can't we demand more from society today we've seen the tropes we've seen the stereotypes we need originality and free thinking by golly poetry is where we can start and Poetry is a vehicle that allows you to be very frank and honest, as well as with songs as well, right? And yes, you can turn things into passive aggression, but on the whole, there are good ways to comment on society and critique it in a more gentle manner. And I think he does this very well in his own melodramatic way in the way that he critiques all of these things. It's not that he hates love poems or pathetic marine poems, but he hates the he he hates the conformity of it all. He wants to read a love poem where there's actual true tension. 
He doesn't want some cruel barrier that's preventing two lovers. That's not realistic. He wants something that he can relate to. And the current offerings of his day are quite not measuring up to par. And I absolutely love that. Like, that's, I mean, that's writing at its finest, in my opinion. And it, it's so pure. It's so, it's so good. It's so right. Nudigate, I'm not going to put my full force and backing behind you as a writer. Because A, you're dead. And B, I don't really know a lot about your personal life or your character. But based upon what I've just read here... Nudigate Prizeman, I thank you for elevating the craft of poetry to a higher level. I dare say that if Nudigate Prizeman had not written the Inspired Singer's Recipe Book or Every Man His Own Poet, we would have witnessed the death of poetry that very year in 1872 but by golly this guy is a hero he is a person we should all aspire to imitate in our own lives in our own crafts elevate our passions to a higher level demand more of them pursue your dreams okay i'm getting a little bit carried away here um because turkeys definitely tried to pursue their dreams and look where that ended up for them thank you so much for listening to another episode of reading cadence i am your host the displaced wisconsinite phil olson and as they say in showbiz that's all he wrote for now